and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-accurate roundtable pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host. Oh, wow. This is too many people here. It is Hannah and Katya and Monica. How's it going, guys? To be fair, I did kind of invite myself. I didn't fill out our scheduler. And then I saw we were recording at eight. And I was like, yep, I'm going to do it. Isn't how this podcast just works? Is we just are inviting ourselves constantly. And Mm -hmm. other people may or may not know. What's the manners handbook thing? Emily Post? Etiquette handbook? I have no idea. Emily Post or Miss Manners? Miss Manners? I have no idea. We violated all. Of them. Well, you know, I just doing terribly. Just you know, sometimes throw a blog on the website. I'm like, well, hope someone's going to show up to talk about this. I mean, we did our quiet quitting, and it took only what four months, five months. I mean, we eventually good. got there. I mean, I'll say the day that the episode came out, I saw three articles on quiet quitting. So yeah, it's we waited enough for the trend to come back around. <laughs> exactly. Much like bell bottom jeans. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that didn't need to come back. Just for a peek behind the curtain. I actually think bell bottoms are kind of fun. Like squishy when you walk. Yeah, they're squishy. I just feel like I'm not tall enough to have them like actually look good. So it's like a gesture towards looking good, but not actually getting there. For the listener, just behind the curtain, most of us have woken up in the last 20 minutes or so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Barely awake. Yeah. I want to say that those of us who have been awake longer than 20 minutes, it didn't help. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be an interesting, this is going to be a good time. This is going to be great. We're going to kill it. So so Uh, it is again, ridiculously early hour of 11 a.m. for me, so I don't know why I'm so tired. But what are we doing? Hannah, this is your topic. All right. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, somewhere out there, my dissertation advisor is disappointed in me and she doesn't know why. But I'm going to do exactly what she told me to not ever do to make like this, which is say what we're not talking about first. So there's a lot of class conscious entertainment. But it's not, but we, but this is like a topic that is more of, you know, really angry, anti caste, tear down the system, eat the rich entertainment, not like something that's class conscious like the nanny. Those of you who listen the show probably know that I watched The Nanny as a child and it's what made me pro-union because there's this episode where Mr. Sheffield drags Fran across the like picket line. Anyway, it's not bad because there's still like this underlying fantasy of she's going to marry the rich millionaire. It's also so, not like, things like, sorry, go ahead, Katya. It's, it's not like vague class awareness or class commentary. It's literally we're going to put a pitchfork in their chest. Yeah, and it's also not things like 9 to 5, although I love that movie, or <laughs> Kill the Boss, and by Kill the Boss, I mean Horrible bosses kill the boss is the German title and it's now what I think of because Josh was a German major anyway it's not horrible bosses because I mean it could be a little bit more like horrible bosses but it's not like they want to reform the system in some way even if in horrible bosses it's literally about killing the boss they like you know they still want to be involved in the system they like their job they have ideas they just want improved working conditions what I'm talking about are movies like Ready or Not where it's literally a movie where the heroine slashes the rich family and kills almost all of them because they made a deal with the devil. It's her against them. Or to talk about the movie that sort of prompted this discussion in the first place and brought it back around, The Menu, which just really peels back the layers on the fine dining experience. And <laughs> yeah. So and then and, we can and, talk about Noma. Yes. And things like Parasite, <laughs> things like Sorry to Bother You, Knives Out, Glass Onion, I think more so than Knives Out. So, so mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mav titled the blog post eat the rich films I think because I eating the rich cinematically yeah because I I just the metaphor I think cap- not actually murder because I my working title was capitalism is bad which is true but not quite what I was getting at <laughs> well, we brought some people in to join us in talking about this like trend of angry 
eat the rich cinematically universe movies. So I, I guess like for two shows in the row, we have Ani. Hi. Hey, Ani. Hello. Thanks for having me. My only right to be here is that I've seen all these movies and I'm really passionate about the topic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only reason I decided I was cool, but I didn't have to talk about this is like, huh, I feel like there's something interesting going on here. Maybe someone will talk mm-hmm. about it with me. I'm, I'm pretty sure also just like the, quali- the all of the qualifications to be a pop culture analyst eventually boil down to at their most fundamental base is I'm reasonably intelligent. I saw a thing. I have thoughts with a capital T. <laughs> <laughs> I have like a whole degree. I know, I know stuff. No, I, I, oh, yeah. I know stuff. But like at its most base. Yeah, my whole degree. Good at it. Rooted in the humanities and cultural studies and historicism. Yes, that thing too. Dr. Ani. And also Nicole is our returning guest for the hundredth time, I think. Thank you for joining yeah, us, Nicole. It's, it's been a while though. And Nicole. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. I have some thoughts, probably influenced by watching Trading Places as a young child Ooh, good. and nine to five. So which we're not going to talk about. I mean, I'm okay if we talk about a little bit yeah. because it's a good movie. And like people I like I mentioned it at work because I watched it for Labor Day last year and people like did not realize that Dolly was like so good on screen. Oh god. I mean, yeah, only, I mean, you've yeah seen like I mean the finest Christmas movie ever. So you know, you know I mean you you're familiar <laughs> with Christmas on the square. So you know yeah, that Dolly yeah. Parton is talented. Yeah, but I'm gonna say I'm gonna just say we should probably not talk about Christmas on the square today. Yeah. <laughs> See, I would have brought up Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, but that's just Best me. Little Whorehouse of Texas is also she's phenomenal in that, but I don't know if anybody's we've got young people here, Nicole. I don't know if they've seen right. it. I, anyway, I, I, I'm happy I to be back. Long, long time ago, and I have a short term and probably long term memory problem, so I don't remember much of it. <laughs> oh, speaking of Dolly, and this is not what we're doing, we were talking to some friends and Josh was like, Have you heard the new Dolly Parton Christmas song, Hard Candy Christmas? And I was like, Oh honey. Oh sweetie. You're older than me. How do you not know? Anyway, Josh has discovered Hard Candy Christmas. So that's the menu. Well, the menu was if you go back and listen to our things you missed episode, Steph, my wife, for those who don't know her, and I talk a bunch about that as one of both of our favorite films of the year. It came out relatively towards the end of the year Mm -hmm. and we never got around to talking about it on the show. And so I'm I am, if nothing else, happy that people have gone out and watched. Yeah, I actually watched it last night. I am interested in thoughts and feelings, <laughs> emotion. I don't know that I have any, but <laughs> okay. I was just gonna say, so if we are starting with the menu, I'm thinking like one thing that I am just so cat eye is like how in tune they are with me, the generalist viewer of things like Chef's Table, and they're yeah. like, "Yes, you've watched it. You've been like allured into this as like a person who clearly does not can like cannot currently afford it. Maybe will never afford it. And even if I could, I don't know if I would uh, type thing. But and then it plays on all of these very wide audience expectations without doing exactly the same joke of this food is too small even though that joke yeah. is in there but it's just it amps that up so much before you even get to the high satire of, of it of the murder mystery part so for I suppose actually for listeners who maybe haven't seen it and are for some reason comfortable with spoiler alert or spoilers rather we could give maybe a quick recap but essentially it is as Ani mentioned hold on we should put the spoiler warning sound in here I, didn't yeah, I think we should say we're gonna we're just gonna spoil some of these movies because yeah. you can't yeah. Probably uh, one of the, yeah. movie analysis episode though. So spoilers yeah. for everything we talk about. Spoiler alert. Thank you. <laughs> 
Mav for that lovely sound audio edition. So anyway, the menu is essentially it's a horror film based around not just fine dining, but like ultra fine dining. A bunch of diners go to an island where they're basically stranded for dinner, essentially. They're supposed to be eating at what's what's the, they're voluntarily the there. They're not, oh yeah, they're voluntarily there. They presumably yeah. I can't remember if they put an actual price tag on the dinner. I was actually trying to find that in the it was twelve hundred or yeah, it was like something like fifteen hundred a plate, and it was plus the transport. It was because yeah, the Nicholas Holt fifteen hundred a plate or fifteen hundred a seat. I think he said a seat. I thought he a seat. said okay. a head. Yeah, yeah. But essentially, yeah. all these diners go to a island called Hawthorne, have this like ultra fine dining experience, which quickly turns into murder mm-hmm. because essentially the chef has become so disillusioned with what has happened to dining that he has decided that his work and life is over. He and his chefs basically all commit suicide and are taking down their diners with them and the diners are also selected essentially like the movie makes it sound like you essentially have to apply to dine here he picks people and so the guest list has been very crafted to essentially pick like the ultra rich and specifically individuals who symbolize things that the chef is like particularly be about for lack of a better word so, like someone who's like a like very influential like dining critic who's like, shut down like about the restaurants but is also responsible in some way for his career an actor for a movie he just really hates and then some like venture capitalists like finance bros who are part of the company that owns his restaurant now essentially and it goes on from there and then the wrinkle in it is oh my gosh the actress's name is Anya Taylor-Joy Anya Taylor-Joy thank you oh boy the wrinkle in it is that Anya Taylor-Joy's character is not supposed to be there Mm -hmm. she was a last minute change on the guest list because essentially the boyfriend date person that well not boyfriend the date person (laughs) Nicholas Holt's character yes Tyler who takes her basically he got dumped so his girlfriend was his former girlfriend was supposed to be there and so he hires her instead to go with him, which kind of upsets class narrative that the chef is trying to build. And I'm right. gonna because she is a she is a work. She, I mean, she's a prostitute. She is a literal working girl, right. and that is mm-hmm. against the fundamental idea of what the chef Ray Fiennes' character is. The chef, what the chef wants to destroy. Like you are the, essentially, the definition yeah. of working class. And essentially, a lot of the film is actually like a lot. Uh, one of the a lot of the plot of the film is actually basically this back and forth of whether or not the chef is going to kill her because he waffles basically between oh she's one of us and then therefore should die with this oh she's one of them therefore should die with them and then ultimately he lets her live because she orders a cheeseburger mm-hmm. <laughs> that, is, that is her redemption yes she her says she wants a really good American. cheeseburger mm-hmm. <laughs> well it's like she, she like the culmination of the cheeseburger scene is essentially the best sentence I've ever said in my life basically she kind of figured she sees a picture of him earlier like at presumably his first job or like first job that means at a diner him. yeah at a diner and he's got like the apricot kiss book and it's like very cute and she basically has this speech where she essentially accuses him of not doing his job anymore in the sense that like, he's not actually cooking for the reason you were supposed to cook. He's not cooking for enjoyment or whatever. It's all this like intellectual exercise rather than actually just like feeding and making them happy. And then she says basically, I'm still hungry. I'm starving. And she orders the cheeseburger and you kind of see like this montage of him then cooking the cheeseburger and he actually looks like he's actually enjoying cooking but pretty much the only time in the film. And so I think mm-hmm. it's this idea of, oh, there are people who still enjoy things. I'm just kind of an entitled prick. And then that's the reason why he lets her live. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, also, and then she can't finish the cheeseburger, so she has to take it to go. And, yes. you know, you gotta, yeah. you, you know, you can't let her not finish the cheeseburger later, so she's gotta leave, right. you know. Well, and, yeah, 
yeah and it's yeah it's like essentially she's like asking can i go please and he's like fine you're not part of this yeah mm-hmm. what's i mean one key thing about this film is that like the chef's character until that moment it's not even a question if she's going to live or like he's going to let her live or die it's what side is she on because they're all going to mm-hmm. die like Katya said that like, the chef and the rest of the staff are like all on board with burning it all down and taking themselves yeah. with it um mm-hmm. which like i thought was an interesting juxtaposition to a movie like ready or not where you're, you're cheering on the heroine who grew up in the foster care system and didn't have wealth and she like married into this wealthy family and it at first appears like a fairy tale and of course it's not because you know rich people who've made a deal with the devil are not a right you know a great <laughs> one aspire towards so yeah. i had a question about the whole anya taylor joy gets the live thing and people's thoughts on it because basically she escapes is the last scene is like she's on a boat in the like body of water on the island and river no idea eating the cheeseburger basically watching the island burn down because mm-hmm. they've lit they've like self-immolated essentially blah 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 and my whole thing is it's like, like I, I guess it is if a story happens and there's no one there to tell the tale did it actually happen because mm-hmm. i think there's a part of this where it's like he he lets her live because it fits with the narrative he's kind of trying to tell through the menu like they're constantly talking about like maintaining the integrity of the menu of that evening which is a, a, basically a series of like plot points essentially in like telling the story of like ruin of fine dining and but i was thinking about like how much fine dining to kind of the point of the movie isn't about food it's about spectacle so if there's no one there to tell the story about the spectacle of the menu did they do their job and then because i was thinking about if literally everyone dies there's no one there to explain what happened right and then so the, it's as if the menu never happened I think- that's a common that's just a common literary trope in general it's why sure i mean it's why we have an ishmael right like it's just it, like right. it's literally someone just has to be there ishmael is irrelevant right. just needs to be there so to say hey and there's this thing that happened to everybody you know right but i guess that's my point is even when he's waffling about whether or not to kill her well you can't mean you don't technically as the viewer know she's gonna live but you kind of know she's gonna live yeah Mm -hmm. i think there's also something special about having her be the escapee and and spectacle viewer so like to your point having somebody witness it but then why that versus oh found video footage or something and i think Mm -hmm. something interesting that happens with her being the watcher and then also eating is that so much of the movie is predicated on can you still sit here and eat while all this horror is happening do you go back to your seats after someone kills himself do you go back to your seat after somebody has his like finger cut off can you go back to like all these things after somebody gets a, their thigh stabbed and then you eat the thing that looks like that and so how much can you stomach is a question that keep getting ramped up over and over and at the end yeah. when she takes that like bite on the boat she has like a smirk in her eye which I think is really interesting and you can go many places with it so I don't think this is like the definitive answer of what that means but she's also watching an island of people burn and die so it's like mm-hmm. she's also eating while people are being cooked essentially so mm-hmm. I don't think that makes her the same as them as far as like the wealth disparity making you a bigger monster but this movie is filled with monsters of all classes you know not to say mm-hmm. that again yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. it's also an interesting you know it's the twist on the usual trope of you know the final girl in a horror film who survived mm-hmm. because she's so good and pure and in this case mm-hmm. we've got a prostitute working girl who is the one who survives because she talks her way out of it not because she just manages to escape but because she confronts the problem and deals with it and manages to to figure out the weak spot and she's mm-hmm. smart enough to get it yeah i yeah i kind of building on what you've all been saying i felt like the reason why she got to leave is because of her like resistance and then ultimate refusal to participate in the fine dining system mm-hmm. like at one point you know they're they're 
there's like a question of, well, how hard have you all really tried to like escape this island? Really? Like, mm-hmm. that, like they just go back and sit in their seats again and again. Mm-hmm. Like, and she's the it, only one who has in fact tried. Yeah. And so she, you know, like, all, like ultimately rejects the food. She says, I don't like the food. Mm-hmm. And so I think it also is like perhaps a bit of a ma- manipulation of, you know, the emotional labor of the chef. Like he, he needs to like regulate, like he regulates his emotions to try and, and I guess that effective labor too. Like he's trying to make her feel a certain way and make diners feel a certain way. And with her, it's, I think, less about speckle since she turns mm-hmm. to the cheeseburger, which is why, like, I thought it was also interesting too, because I think a lot of people, when they think about the service industry, might make assumptions like, oh, the like minimum wage, like fast food joints are like the really depressing places, like fine dining. That's where it's at. But if you like read mm-hmm. it all about mm-hmm. actual fine dining, Katya had to bring up Noma. Yeah. Uh, there's an article, like, I'm, there's loads of articles about Noma. Well, Noma is a Scandinavian fine dining restaurant. Not just a Scandinavian fine dining. Noma is considered like, it's essentially like the closest thing I think to a real life menu in like the restaurant in the menu in the sense that it is the progenitor of many things in fine dining. Mm. A lot of people who are like big food fine dining fanatics are like mourning the loss of this restaurant that happened within basically the formal announcement. And they're not actually closing. They're doing a different project. Read into that how you would like. A lot of people have different takes on what that means. But like it's a lot of food people are talking about like the end of the fine dining era. And a lot of the conversation about it is specifically about how that restaurant, but also fine dining in general, exists because of unpaid labor. Also, yeah, grueling labor, too. So to read an excerpt Mm. from the article from The New York Times, which I'll link, Fine Dining and the Ethics of Noma's Meticulously Crafted Fruit Beetle. Like, this is an excerpt about one of the chefs who's making 120 of these, like, fruit beetles in a glass box. She assembled those shapes to form the beetle. I'm not going to try and pronounce these French words. I skip. A glossy three-dimensional creature made out of fruit leather. Most days before dinner service, she assembled 120 perfect specimens and pinned each one in a glass box ready to serve to diners. All the while, she said she was forbidden to laugh. That's in quotes. In the past, Miss Hedges' labor might have been obscured or even dismissed, but in the middle of what felt like a shifting sentiment against the culture of fine dining, it became a crucial detail. They illustrated the unglamorous drudgery of high-end restaurant kitchens and sound more like another TSD at the factory, another lonely shift on the assembly line. So one of the things that I really wanted to bring up when I watched this film was this idea of visible or invisible labor without even having the context of this article or knowing this about fine dining in general. But I just thought about all of these people who were trapped in the restaurant. There's varying degrees of what makes them quote unquote bad, right? And when we think about our own complacency in consumerism when it comes to the exploitation of like invisible labor, right? Every time that you go order an $8 latte, which, you know, happens a lot in LA, right? Because they're all $8 lattes. I can't avoid it. But, you know, coffee itself is incredibly destructive to local culture, to environment. Like, we are part of the problem in our complacency Mm -hmm. and consumerism to be participant in those things. And the idea that a lot of these people who are invited to the island, like, is exactly their willingness to participate in systems that exploit invisible labor in general. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this is very specifically in a fine dining experience in which all of the labor is present because you are actually watching everyone cook. At the same time, you're not seeing the food chain of how all of those things got there. Or you kind of are in this case because they show you, you know, the man fishing for the scallop that then they eat later. And so there is this like very conscious awareness of labor at every point in time within a story of class consciousness in the menu. Right. But I would also argue that there isn't. I mean, and I think that's part of it, right? Is that all of these diners 
are the ones who are sort of exploiting the invisible labors. And that's what makes well, them bad people. I think actually one of the takeaways from, me from the film is that part of the reason why he kills the people that he kills is many of them don't actually acknowledge that the labor in front of them is labor. They don't acknowledge those as people. They, they don't like to them, even when the labor is in front of them, the labor, the workers, the chefs, everybody is in front of them. They don't actually acknowledge them as people. There's a pivotal scene where, mm. what is it? The jerk. What's his name again? Tyler. Tyler? Tyler, yeah. Oh, Nicole, yeah. Yeah, Tyler's the one who's responsible for bringing Anya Taylor-Joy to the thing. And importantly, he knows she's going to die. He knows he's going to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the one, he is the one diner who is in on the experience. He is no, completely aware. He knows everyone is going to die, actually. Right, right. he like, knows he's going to die. So he knows everybody's going to die. Whoever he brings will die. And he doesn't care. But right. there's a scene where, like, in the very early, before you're kind of, like, in on what the, what's going about to happen fully, he goes and he's, like, observing some of the chefs and he's talking to them. But he's, but, and basically there's a point where Anya Taylor-Joy's character is, oh, well, like, why didn't you ask his name? Like, you want him to know you and acknowledge you, but you didn't ask him his name. And he just goes, oh, you know. And there's points throughout that where also, like, the staff, even though they're constantly there, like, the diners either, like, they will acknowledge them when they want something, but not fully as people. And then when they speak out of character, like, out of that character of, like, customer's always right, it's, like, this moment of their completely, what's the there's a word for it? But they're basically, like, something about their worldview has been momentarily upset. And so I think part of what I found really with the film, which I think is also true to what you're saying, Monica, is like, it's not just they're not aware, it's that they're willingly choosing to be blind to what is happening in front of them, even while it's happening and in the most ostentatious way possible. There's a point where one of the chefs, and this is the first time that you really like, the diners are let in on what's about to happen. One of the courses is the, I think, head sous chef commits suicide in front of them. He shoots himself in the head. And several of the diners are just saying, oh, it's theatrics. Oh, it's acting. It's not real. While the other half are like, no, 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 a man just shot himself. And basically it takes, I think, like several courses beyond that before they're totally willing to acknowledge it, that that's what happened. And I think, at least for some of the characters, I'm thinking specifically of the critics, the pivotal mm-hmm. moment is when the chef allows himself to get stabbed by one of his new chefs. So it's not until, I think, somebody who they consider to be their peer is physically, mm-hmm. like, harmed that they're like, oh, no, we're going to die. I mean, to be fair, I don't know how much they really, I mean, they acknowledge sure. it. I don't Absolutely. know how much they, like, totally acknowledge things because they literally sit and pay with their credit cards and get their gift bags before they're covered in giant s'more things yeah. and burned to death. I, I mean, part of me, like this film and Glass Onion were interesting to me because they're the two films that were made w- roughly with COVID that acknowledged yeah. COVID because this acknowledges that like they, they got an angel investor to part COVID and part of me was like, you know, this is about... They were open COVID. and serving through COVID. Yeah. And, like part of me was like that this is the super rich and like Josh, you know, and I were talking about Nicholas Holt's character, Tyler, about why he like is like so happy to die. And I was like, well, I mean, if you look at like government, not just the U.S. government's obfuscating like what's happening with COVID. If you look at, you know, some super rich people going to islands, which is also a plot point in the glass onion to have parties like mm-hmm. during COVID. I'm not trying to pass individual blame on a structural problem, but, you know, to some degree, like part of the problem with the COVID pandemic has been that people don't want to give up certain types of entertainment and spectacle for the sake of others and even themselves because, you know, like long COVID is a thing. And, you know, we saw Donald Trump get super ill with COVID during his presidency. I think with Tyler, it's even beyond that, though, right? Because Mm -hmm. so Tyler is not just a Tyler's not representing like a government or even a systemic thing. Tyler is representing the callous indifference. Tyler has the advantage of being the one person who's not really in the upper 
So he knows what's going on, probably because the chef was going to bring him in, you know, sort of at the bottom. Tyler knows what's going on and he's aspiring to be rich, regardless of what that functionally means. He is willing to sacrifice Margot on a Taylor Joy because, you know, well, she's a whore. She doesn't matter. She's irrelevant. You know, he, yeah. I, I, I hired her here to die. And so he's it's literally the I don't think it's even really about COVID for him so much as it's about oh, yeah. I will step on whoever I can in order to be in order to count as in this in group, even if it's literally the last thing I'll ever do. I and am, it, you know, I am yeah. willing to do. And it is because ultimately, mm-hmm. again, spoilers, we've been doing it. But ultimately, Tyler doesn't die at the end. Tyler dies much earlier because he's basically ordered to kill himself by the chef so as to essentially, you know, prove his. And, well, <laughs> and, but in interestingly, the movie, like the chef says that was not planned. So it sounds like initially right. he was planning on killing Tyler at the very end. It, With everybody else. Like, yes. Right. And so he changes his mind. And on the, I mean, he's there basically because the chef sees Tyler as a symbol for the mockery, essentially that foodies have made of food. Mm, yes. It becomes this intellectual mm-hmm. exercise rather than actually about eating something nice, which like, mm-hmm. but I only was able to watch the movie once. So I'd be curious if other people have different interpretations, but it seems to be the reason why he's like, no, you're going to die earlier is he like has a speech where he basically tells the room that Tyler knew that Anya Taylor-Joy was going to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, I, that's why. That, and I think going on to off of what you said about the foodie mockery piece is key here because he is obsessed with being part of not just a wealthy in-group of any kind, but of this elite in-group that gets to have access to the chef and this lifestyle and this subculture of being very into fine dining. And I think it goes back to everything we've been saying about spectacle. And I kind of want to tie his obsession around food and achievement in this way to what we're talking about, the visibility or invisibility of labor, because I think I think Tyler fetishizes the, the food culture here. And I think mm-hmm. part of mm-hmm. exploitation is the part of the fetish as well. So mm-hmm. we see where they live in their work camp. We see where they literally go to the bathroom because we have an, their exposed toilets in their shared quarters. We see them cooking the entire time. We're asked to watch. The guests are asked to watch them. And then we're asked to watch Tyler. And that's when the intersection of the very highly visible fetishized exploited later labor is turned on its head because Tyler can't cook shit. So that's when all the two like intersection of fetishes sort of break down because he cannot participate. And mm-hmm. then you know he's asked to very kindly end himself. Okay. And yeah. But also I literally. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Exactly. Without contest, which I think is mm-hmm. also worth talking about. Go ahead, Matt. Well, but also his fatal flaw is the literal fetishization. He is taking yeah. photos. That's the problem. He is he was expressly told not to and he knows he's going to die so it's weird because he knows what's going on he knows he's right, going to die like, he knows everybody's going to die then his, but he's got to IG this you gotta got, yeah. I gotta have my story up you know so it's literally like basically he doesn't get to participate in the final end game he has to go earlier because the chef is pissed that like why are you photographing this thing that was supposed to happen later you know it's literally you are not even the intellectual exercise of it that's the food critics you are literally just looking for the spectacle of showing everybody. You just want to show people that you're here in this moment. Yeah. He's quite literally a poser. Yes. Yes. I will say that my favorite joke of the entire movie was when he received tortillas with photos of himself taking photos. Yes. (laughs) thing was great. I'm a little sad that you never see like what Anya Taylor-Joy's would have gotten as tortillas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, something also that I find interesting about a lot of these films is like their complete and total disinterest or rejection of romance. Okay, the menu at first and like and unfolds as if this is a couple, like a real couple.
couple who like are together are going to this island and she's not as into food as him but you know it's like a romantic dinner gone wrong and then you know there there are other movies that just completely ignore like romance and say knives out for the most part mm-hmm. maybe there you know there are people who are married in that film but like their relationships are all deeply dysfunctional and then ready or not is there anybody married in that film oh, oh. Knives, in knives out there is but there's not in glass onion yes. I'm going, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis yeah, yeah yes. Jamie yes. Um, yes. finds out her husband's having an affair at the end yeah. and then ready or not is just the complete and total like rejection of the heterosexual marriage because but actually literally like the menu her husband is prepared to let her die so he can keep his family's wealth like the, in that movie although this one comes later spoiler alert too late now you all knew what you were getting into is that like <laughs> he, sound. you think that he is going to help her like you think he's going to help her you think that she she like and he are going to team up together for a second but no no he talks to his family and he like he turns on her like in an instant and is actually the one who like betrays her and like you think that she might very well die because of his like active participation and you know like that that completely undermines any aspect of the marriage and the other people in the film that are married are also like unhappy too like the one kind of like good character played by Adam Brody is Alex the husband's and he has a deeply dysfunctional marriage and yeah and like you also have characters kind of like Tyler who like maybe are sort of super like wealthy mm-hmm. willing to like their people and you know literally kill them to keep their position it's actually a deeply fun film it's a comedy more like mm-hmm. people compared to Blue I don't know if that's like wholly true mm-hmm. it's a lot more fun than the menu if you want something that's you know you know take down the rich I have a question about the marriage thing though because you've I think you've watched a broader swath of these more recently is is it because you said yeah. like marriage and romantic relationships but I'm wondering if across these films is it a critique of romantic relationships or is it a critique of the institution of marriage and the role that it plays in capitalism in like, consolidating and maintaining wealth I have a theory there Great. I think it's a I think it's a critique of so marriage is the easiest and I don't necessarily mean easiest in real life because you know the entire concept of finding the relationship is tricky but like marriage is from a narrative point of view the easiest way to literally transpose somebody from one class to another right like Mm -hmm. i don't need an excuse i don't need you to win the lottery i don't need Mm -hmm. you to get a new job i don't need you i can literally just say you used to be poor and now your new wife is rich or your new husband or whatever like i can literally just move you from point a to point b by pair bonding you with somebody who's in point b already like so and there's this idea of like love conquers all that statistically in reality doesn't actually right right. (laughs) so i would use i think that functions in that way whether it you know as just the shorthand of so the Samara weaving character in ready or not I don't remember I don't remember uh, the bride's name but the entire point is oh you know it's a fairy tale wedding you have won the jackpot and now poor girl you are part of the rich family but no you've got to earn it you know with this deadly game of chance and if she wins the entire family loses right well if she survived she actually doesn't have to kill them Hannah you've seen it probably I've only watched it once or twice ever but I don't believe I don't believe she but I think she can just I think that if she just survives and doesn't kill anybody, then she just gets to be part of the family. And they, if she manages to successfully win the hide and seek, it's I just thought, fine. I don't think she know, I think I, if I remember, if the new spouse wins, the whole family like loses their fortune or something. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. like literally, yeah, like literally at the end, like because of the deal with the devil. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, what would have like happened they if they explode? Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. 
right, what happened right. Have been oh, another yeah. game though, because she ends up with she ends up with hide and seek, but she could have just you know she could have she could have played Monopoly or Scrabble or something, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mean, those people are initiated into the family, but it's the hide and seek that the person has to be sacrificed. Okay, um, okay, so, so it's like only the, if like you hide and seek. So like her two fates directly, and it, these are both really bad because then she would might become like the character of G, who is the brother's wife. She could have oh. been like she could have gotten another card and played a game because that's like the, that's the setup. You like draw a game card and the family plays the game. And so if it's Monopoly, then it's fine. They induct her to the family. But then she would have been part of the family. And then mm-hmm. one day someone else would have drawn a hide and seek card and she would have been yeah, asked sure. to participate and kill them, which is why Daniel, the character played by Adam Brody, is an alcoholic because he like is being destroyed like inside out by his guilt of the fact that like his family only survives through like the ritualistic murder of these women who are brought into the family or men. They believe that there is a there's a man who marries into the family, I think, maybe, and is murdered not on screen, but like in the past. But I, I do think, I don't think, it's, I think it's critiquing one of the plot points of the, you know, 19th century story that Matt was kind of getting at. The, you know, people get married and like a lot of the problems are resolved. Anya Taylor-Joy's other film, Emma, like I thought that film mm-hmm. overall did a pretty decent job of showing how terrible the upper classes were in the 19th century. But at the end, it turns into more of a road. I didn't put it, I said it didn't really count for this because it turns into a romance and everything's fine. She and Knightley get together. It solves the community problems. Everybody's happy. They marry within their classes, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I think that my, maybe the most romantic example I can think of in any of these films we're talking about now is in Sorry to Bother You. The main character, Cash, has a girlfriend, Detroit. And like, they they do reconcile at the end of the film. But I, but it's not the same as an Austin novel because, you know, an Austin novel would end with them getting back together and succeeding in like their endeavors and everything would be stable. But like the final like scene of Sorry to Bother You is like a horse transformation. And if I'm not going to like even try to explain Sorry to Bother You in a recap, like this <laughs> menu, I just go watch it. It's really good. It's worth it's an interesting film. But you know, that the horse, like the final shot with the horse is like shows that not everything is really resolved and relationships aren't a great way to try and overcome. Well, they're not like a, they're not bigger, a resolution yeah. in and of themselves yeah. in that, in, in that yeah, movie. Exactly. It's just like part of what's going on. Yeah. So yeah. So I think there's like an interesting thing with relationships going on like in these films because like, you know even in things like Marvel movies where like the main point is romance for the most part they've always written in like a romantic character and I think they've gotten better kind of over the years but, of giving them something to do sometimes but it's like why is there a romance plot here if you're just going to have this person just be on the screen and do nothing I'm not I'm absolutely Kit not talking Kit Harrington is very hot that's movie. why oh okay <laughs> I was thinking of Kit Harrington in Eternals yeah. who literally has nothing to do he is there because he is he'll get his own movie later as Black Knight sure but in that movie he has nothing to do he is inconsequential in every possible way he's we're okay with that he's eye candy just want to look at him (laughs) I have a suggestion for another film but this is on one that I watched for our Christmas special for our our um, interesting (laughs) (laughs) but it's odd it's odd this was for our Christmas movie special and it didn't really fit in with what we were talking about so I didn't bring it up because the movie is much like Ready or Not was horribly mismarketed like Ready or Not like sort of tends it's going to be this is just going to be a horror film it's just you know it's just a thriller and it's actually not that horror films can't be deep they often are but you from the trailers to Ready or Not you are not going to be aware that it is this class consciousness story that makes Hannah like it which is really the majority of what that film's about well another one that's that is the movie Violent Night which from the commercials 
Rules is Santa Claus and Taken. And kind of it is. It's like this is a Santa played by David Harbour and he's a Santa with a very particular set of skills. That's what the, that, that's what you find from the trailer. And I was like, I this just looks stupid and dumb. I have to go see it. If you go and see it, though, it's ready or not. That's the story. It's Santa and it's Santa trying to like deal with trying to save this family that is being attacked because it's well, it's not exactly ready or not, but it's literally about what do rich people have to do with the concept of Christmas and who owns what. And it's got it's not as good as the menu, but it really has a it's really trying to do this message of, you know, is Christmas about commercialism? If it's about commercialism, what does that mean in a world that is predicated just on commercialism as it is now? So does the Mm -hmm. consumerism even matter anymore? What do you do when when a family so wealthy because they are one percenters has people who are not part of the one percent moving in? Can the money drive a wedge between people? It's got a lot of really big swings that it's taking. And because they want Hannah to watch it, it's got specific Dickens illusions. So John Leguizamo's character is Scrooge. (laughs) And in fact, you know, without looking up, you can just check his IMDb page. His character's name is, in fact, Scrooge, because that's who he is. And I know no one else has seen it, but it's an interesting take. (laughs) And it's like where as they try to go around and do the, you know, well, who deserves Christmas? Who, you know, who is this really for? What does it mean to be a true believer in the message of Christmas versus commercialism? It's trying to do the same kind of thing. And it's odd because, I mean, it's not super good, (laughs) but it's fun. (laughs) You know, it's not like bad. It's not like it's not like I regret having to go see that because I, you know, I would tell you there we've done movies on this show before where it's, oh don't go see this you know Violent Night's worth a watch but you know now that you can watch it on television you don't have to I, um, it's probably not worth going out for but you can I think it's on streaming now I think I yeah, saw it on streaming. Peacock maybe you could stream it if, or you know you can watch it from your home and you'll be like oh okay that's a they were trying to do a thing yeah you won't regret it it's just kind of but it's in that camp um, so. is this the time that I get to bring up Triangle of Sadness though <laughs> yes go for it hey, so, so speaking of movies where we're like this one actually comes with a strong recommendation for me because I put Triangle of Sadness in my things you might have missed this year, right? Just like Mav put in the menu. I would highly recommend Triangle of Sadness, especially now that it's gotten a Best Picture nomination for the Oscars. Because now having seen both Triangle of Sadness and the menu, I think Triangle of Sadness is making menu's points a lot better, actually. I think that it pulls less punches. I think that its commentary is potentially more overt. I think that there were things about the menu that maybe were not as explicit in service of the narrative. For example, this idea that all of the customers happen to be complacent and that's why they've been chosen versus being actively malicious in any way. So Triangle of Sadness is a story about an influencer model couple who get invited as part of, you know, like a gifting exchange where, you know, you get a free trip and then you post about it in order to try and encourage people who have the money to pay for the trip. They they end up on a yacht and this yacht crashes on a deserted island. So it's a story about outsiders pretending to fit into a culture of incredibly rich people. And then what happens when all of the rich people are then stuck on this deserted island together with the crew of the boat. So largely a story that is about selling out, right? So this idea of how much money are you willing to take in order to then change your personality, especially when it comes most explicitly when everyone is then 
then stuck on the deserted island. And the people who happen to have all of the actual quote unquote useful skills are those who used to work on the boat. And so then the hierarchy of who is in power flip and all of rich people are then willing to sell out in terms of offering services, offering their bodies, offering the things that they have in order to then win favor with the crew of the boat. And because we said that we were going to do spoilers, the end of the film is that we've actually learned that this is not a deserted island. It's a private luxury resort island that everyone thinks has been a deserted island this whole time. And the people on the boat end up killing the people who realize that it is a luxury resort so that they can continue to stay in power instead of going back to the real world. So this is another very the rich type moment in which it's really about like how much are you willing to actively ignore harm that you are doing in order to participate in the capitalist system. Like I would argue much more explicitly than the menu actually does. And I think that it's doing so in ways that are incredibly funny and incredibly dark and a much much more hard hitting satire, I, I guess is maybe my read of the two films compared to each other. So I was really interested to see that the menu got so much more attention in Triangle of Sadness, but ultimately that's probably why Triangle of Sadness ended up with the Best Picture nomination and the menu ended up more with Best Acting nominations for Anya Taylor-Joy and Ralph Fiennes. What is with all these movies taking place on like luxury or deserted islands? Because Glass Onion does the same thing. Mm. Who, by the way, who by the way has seen that besides I have not. Me. I have seen Glass Onion. I have too. I have I've seen Glass Onion. I have, I was trying to think about the island thing last night, especially I was also trying to think of like the name Hawthorne because where that's coming from because I immediately go to like transcendentalism and Walden and like the idea of like why you isolate yourself. Walden also has an interesting class thing that's not actually, that's more about the history of Thoreau can only really do Walden Pond because he is in some way benefiting from labor that is not acknowledged. We talked about the laundry specifically. Yeah. So, and it's not, I wouldn't say that, and we have, there's a separate conversation somebody off this episode about, I don't think it's necessarily the same ethics as obviously we're seeing in the menu, but so when Thoreau isolates himself as Walden Pond, there's like several things, some of which are acknowledged and some of which are not. So basically he's getting help from people in town that allow him to do this and maintain the lifestyle that he has. So like women in his family are doing his laundry and sometimes getting him food. So he's not entirely living off of the land, even though at certain points in the narrative provides, like he makes it seem like that and he claims to be doing that. Historical record, I think is I'm not an expert exactly in the extent to which this is true. And I think also it's very complicated to go back through historical records and substantiate this. The best actually kind of like explanation I've ever seen of this is weirdly in Walden a Game, where they acknowledge like all the things that are going around in the system around Thoreau to basically allow this thing to happen. And also, and so basically like the influence of the environment on what Thoreau as a way to enable what Thoreau is doing. Not necessarily, I think, from a point of critique, but from a point of like, instead of saying like, this is bad, but from a point of no, like this is this is a story that's happening because things were structured in a way that allowed it to happen, if that makes sense. Some of which is visible and some of which is not. But I think that kind of got what me thinking about like why islands all the time. And I think part of that is, I think especially when we, a lot of these movies seem to be picking up somehow, like whether explicitly or not, there's a game and not necessarily in the sense of like you're like hide and seek, but like, 
there's a game in the sense of like, I think that's one of the things where like Anya Taylor-Joy's character in the menu gets to survive is she figures out what the game is. And she's <laughs> the first I mean, what, yeah. and what is a I, mystery movie but a game? Right. I, and I think, and one of the things that I think like why Islands, and this is what I've talked about actually with Walden, is one of the reasons why it works is because you're creating what in game studies we call a game space. You've mm-hmm. created a world in which a specific set of rules pertain that separates it from reality. Mm-hmm. The thing that allows the capitalist, by, I would argue, or at least theory, like in theory, maybe what, like the island is performing the function in the, of making this a discrete universe where you can play with variables in the way that makes it much clearer than the outside world. It's one of the ways that like games produce rhetoric is you can kind of change, mm-hmm. you can change the you can change the rules or I think in the case of menu, I don't think it's necessarily changing the rules, making them more explicit through the game. There's but, the story and several film adaptations, the most dangerous game, which is I, if <laughs> island, you can yeah. hunt people for sport because you yeah. make the rules. I think mm-hmm. it is a it gives you actually against dual purpose right now because of COVID protocols. It's just easier to film on islands than it is to film in New York City, where you have to like literally test everyone who's on set constantly to, you know, so just it became easier to do isolated stories when you have smaller casts. But I just think if when you're doing these stories, when you're bottling off from the rest of the world, it allows you to explore your own high concept thing where murder is on the table because, you know, it's an island. There's no rules here. Sometimes the Mona Lisa is there. Yeah, sure. (laughs) That's a thing you can do. With the game piece, especially, I wanted to also like specifically touch on the most dangerous game and also just acknowledge that part of why this works for the setting of a wealthy, eat the rich sort of themed game is that these locations are always very difficult to get to unless you are Mm -hmm. extremely wealthy. But then I'm so glad you brought up the most dangerous game because that short story is supposed to be a satire of a big game hunter who then gets hunted, right? So I think, especially for the menu, it's like now these wealthy people become the menu. So it's very much upping the ante on the trope of the most dangerous game. So I was like very excited about it. I'm actually surprised that there was no cannibalism in the menu. There isn't, is there? No. I mean, like, the guy just bleeds all over the place, but they don't eat him once he bleeds all over the place. Well, oh, yeah. Does that mean I get to bring up Hannibal? <laughs> sure. 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 Go for it. I mean, Hannibal is, it, it's not an eat the rich, but it's an eat the rude, right? And so there is mm. you know, this idea <laughs> of... we really related, though. Yeah, we're chewing on some entitlement here, right? And one of the things that I thought of when I was watching the, the menu is, I don't know if anyone else was a huge fan of the Mads Mikkelsen Hannibal television series that was on, by the way, on NBC for no goddamn reason other than the fact that they filmed it in Canada because it was incredibly cheap. It was Brian Fuller and it was absolutely beautiful and probably should have been like a Showtime series based on the aesthetics. But they hired a, and it is absolutely fantastic, a food stylist whose entire job was to think about which cuts of meat would also work as like human cuts of meat to understand how to prep which dishes for the show. And she had a blog and she wrote a book and she published all of the recipes that were some version of, oh, in this in this episode, like it's a thigh, but since you're not using human thigh, like a good substitute would be would be this cow thigh or this this pork shank or whatever it happened to be. But there was just the attention to the aesthetics and sort of the when we think about the violence of food and of meat, like there is something like inherently happening when we're discussing notions of flesh right and when we're discussing our consumption of flesh and the fact that she is a prostitute like that in Anya Taylor-Joy is a prostitute is incredibly significant right because that is also the f- commodification of a flesh right? and mm-hmm. the 
this idea of the entitlement of if you purchase a flesh, you own a flesh in the same way that like these, these stakes are being approached. When we think of something like a Wagyu beef, right? That's a cow that's never allowed to walk ever because that's the thing that makes the meat so incredibly tender. And when we think about that as an animal that we have chosen to never let walk, it's just an incredible amount of entitlement. And so to juxtapose it with something like Hannibal, where Hannibal is very wealthy, right? But they're the same way that our chef is very wealthy. And in some ways, I think Hannibal's wealth and taste are also the thing that allow him to then critique others. And I know that this is a weird argument to be like, yeah, our serial killer isn't that bad, but there is something about Hannibal's consciousness of others who are also in the system and the fact that his money is the thing that gives him access to then be able to critique any of these people at all that feels important, right? When we look at these influencers in Triangle of Sadness, it is they're outsiders with access to this inside world that otherwise has these great barriers to entry. Same thing with Glass Onion with our detective, right? He wants to win the iPad because he doesn't have a lot of money. Like he is excited because he has gotten to go on this free beach vacation. So there is always needing to be this element of outsider. I think one, because as viewers, we need somebody to identify with because we don't have that level of money. Feels like it's a really important entry point, but also one that maybe we haven't necessarily talked yet the show about this idea. How do we reconcile with our ideas about wanting to watch these narratives, wanting to punish rich people as outsiders from that community? This is going backwards, Monica, but I also just realized as you were speaking that there is another kind of marketing and trafficking in women in Glass Onion to Whiskey. The girlfriend to the men's rights activists is having an affair with the Elon Musk-esque character Miles Braun in an attempt to buy the men's rights activists' favors. And even though she's like in on it, and herself, she, to be fair. Yeah, yes, and herself. Both, yeah. relations, both relationships are, yes. her relationship with Batista's character and her relationship with Ed Norton's character are both transactional. She's only there. Yes. And she's and she's smart enough to acknowledge it. She's not just like flighty. Yes. Even though she's playing a, she's playing yes. a flighty facade. She is aware of it. She and, is trading on her body. Yeah. And she also starts to wonder if it's worth it. And actually like every single person one way or another admits to selling themselves in Glass Onion to Miles Braun, the billionaire. And toward the end, and the question I think becomes over the course of the movie, when does this stop being worth it? When does this stop being worth it? When does this stop being worth it? When can we, like, when will we finally turn on this person? I think maybe to get back to your final point, Monica, about like reconciliation. And also I find it very interesting maybe that, I don't know, I don't know what other people's takes on this were who watch Glass Onion that I think maybe sometimes we watch these films and they're and the film like sets us up for a catharsis. And by we, I mean not us specifically, but audience, audience feels catharsis. They watch the movie, they enjoy the movie and the rules of the game, but the reaction to an end of a movie is very different to the reaction of something that happens in real life. For example, the end of Glass Onion ends with the Mona Lisa being burned as a to make a point about this new technology Braun wants to release that's been rushed through production and will like potentially cause a lot of like people to die. So like the Mona Lisa being destroyed will be the one thing that no one can ignore so that like the truth yeah. about the technology <laughs> will come out maybe you know like what's the argument makes? yeah and, it totally is the argument the film yeah, makes yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the argument as the, film the makes curator that. right as the person with the museum degree I was like oh I don't know how I feel but it brings me to an incident that some of you recall that a group of climate protesters in 2022 threw a can of mm-hmm. tomato soup at a Van 
go and the, yeah, sunflowers to like protect like fossil fuel. And Remind me, many that, people were like, glass? like, yeah, yeah. So yes. just we should, if you've not seen these protests, they've done it more than once. They've done it at several paintings. They throw soup at the, at these priceless works of art, knowing that they are protected. And right before they throw soup at them, they intentionally glue their hands to the wall. So it will take authorities a long time for them to get them free. That way they can sit there and they know they're going to be arrested. It's an act of, it's an right. act of, you know, it's an act of protest through vandalism that ultimately they know is relatively harmless in the long run since the paintings are protected. But it gives them the ability to, you know, while the cameras are rolling to talk about how, you know, how stupid they're being, they can spout their message on, you well, know, eco-terrorism totally or whatever. Which is it's ultimately actually, what protest, which mm-hmm. is great, which is what also not all, but like one of the functions of protest to create right. spectacle to make people pay attention. Yes. yes. So, so a lot of people have, even people who like generally agree with environmentalism have critiqued them and I'm not going to critique podcasters on the protesters on this podcast. But my, my, so that's not my point in saying they're bad, but, but I think that the movie was laying out brilliant. a similar... Yeah, a I, I think they're yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I want to be clear. I'm not like, I'm not, the argument of critique is not mine, but mm. like the argument that I think they're making about, you know, like you using spectacle, throwing like soup at works of art that are beloved, talking about, you know, like how like that kind of thing mirrors like the destruction of the planet we all need to live on. Like, I, I think that like Glass Onion laid out a similar um, argument and it's destruction of the Mona Lisa in terms of, you know, a lot of people are going to die of this thing. There, There is no evidence to tie anything together. Like the six people in this room are the ones who need to like come together and testify and tell the truth. Like how can like something not be ignored, the destruction of the Mona Lisa, that it's just the film is making the argument the destruction of the Mona Lisa is important. And while it's sad that Mona is gone, it's not outweighed by what will be gained if, you know, a horrible billionaire with no regard for human life is taken down. Well, and it, and I think it has an interesting, and it also ties it back to the idea that like, I mean, this happens, it's happening in protests right now where like we, we respond as a, and not we, the royalty society responds more to the destruction of property than the destruction of people. Yes, yes absolutely. Of, especially in the context of protest. I mean, one of the reasons why, like the point about why that protest is brilliant is like, it's nonviolent, but the, I would argue that like the reactions globally of people to that, those protests was like very telling of, yeah, we care more about this quote unquote priceless mm-hmm. art than we care about the planet dying or people dying. It reminds me oh. of the fire at Notre Dame yeah. and all this, we've got to raise money. We've got to fix this, you know, this priceless building and, you know, all this money that got raised so quickly and yet, okay, so we can spend all this money on that. People aren't spending money on other things that, that could be more useful, right? I mean, not to right. say that Notre Dame is worthless, but I mean, I just remember when that was going on and people were sort of pushing back about you've raised how many millions in 48 hours to fix a building. Day, yes. And yet, yes, mm-hmm. you know, all over people are starving, don't have medicines, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that why aren't we, mm-hmm. if we can find the money for that, why don't you care about people who could use it? Well, I would add to it, and I think this sort of ties it back to, it's kind of, I'm going to tie it back to the film. With those protesters, the protesters who are throwing the soup at the artwork 
work. The reason their protest is effective is not just that they're doing it, but because the average person who's complaining about them does not know that the paintings are fine. They are com- like, I've seen a lot. Of, I've seen people yes. online going, this is awful. You know, you have your message, but it's not worth destroying this priceless piece of art because they don't understand that there is glass. fine. <laughs> Anybody who's but the thing is, which sort of shows how little they actually care, because anybody who's an actual museum fan who's been and seen not maybe I've never seen the, the Mona Lisa in person because I've not been to the Louvre. Right. But I've been to a museum and I know that like you don't just put, you know, a priceless painting out there for you to touch it. There's glass on it. Mm-hmm. You know, also, I have pictures in my house. I've seen a framed photo before. Like, I know how glass works and like it's clear that they've not actually harmed it. But people don't know that because they're not actually interested in the experience. What they're interested in is complaining that someone has destroyed property. Well, and well in complaining property. that they that when they say, well, their message is important, but it allows them to downplay the importance of the message. Right. Right. And the reason right. I point that out, though, is because I actually saw and I don't know if I can find it again. I saw people complaining about how dare Glass Onion destroy <laughs> the Mona Lisa just to, for Ryan Johnson to make his oh my God, point. Seriously? As though they don't understand. Oh, yeah. They not know like, how I, I read lots work? of really dark. No. I read oh. lots of very dark corners of Reddit and, oh. <laughs> and Facebook so you don't have to. Thank but yeah, you. There are people who don't get how movies work and don't really oh. functionally understand that no, the Mona Lisa is fine. They destroyed a poster of the Mona Lisa. They're really cheap. I can buy you one right now. I don't even need to buy yeah. you one. I have a color laser printer. I can make you, you know. Oh, yeah, so, the world. yeah, me too. Yes. So, but I mean, that's the, but that, but I mean, I'm making fun of, I'm making fun of people because they don't agree with my worldview and I'm mean, but also realistically, the people who don't know that are frankly less educated than I am. And I get, you know, barring the, even though, you know, the examples like this show aside, the ability to just randomly go to museums, which I've, you know, poor people can do it, but it's, I did it when I was poor, but it's not necessarily an accessible experience, right? Like maybe yeah. you just don't yeah. know because it is kind of special to say, well, have you ever been around a priceless work of art? I mean, I was, you know, I was on welfare and had been on field trips to where I, yes, I had been in, but like most people that's not true for. So, so it is sort of a, is a thing to sort of understand that the idea of being privileged enough to be in a space to where you can throw soup at a priceless work of art is yeah. you're weirdly not at the bottom of the food chain already because right. by, by because I mean that's that why space. public history even exists right is like it's an entire right. program that is trying to figure out how to like institutionalize museums as institutions like and, right. yeah. and I guess I'm also sort of realizing too like how much of this discourse also seems to happen when you're dealing with things right? like protests in general like rioting in general and it is sort of mm-hmm. this because destruction of property is the thing that you have access to, right? It is, it is Nicole, you're absolutely right. The thing that, that people tend to do in order to downplay the message of being like, oh, well, property is the thing that we should be concerned about here. But it's also because property is the thing in a capitalistic society that we all value, right? That's 
the reason all those things are being destroyed is because it is something that is supposed to be making you upset in order to pay attention. I'm also just thinking about there was so much public discourse when it came to like the Kim Kardashian Met dress. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Of this idea of we let her wear a priceless artifact, which like as somebody who has studied textile conservation, should she have worn a dress that is an artifact and did she damage it? Yes. But so much of the conversation was actually just like incredibly like disgusting like racial politics and policing of her body Mm -hmm. because she did not look like Marilyn a white woman like it had very Mm -hmm. little to do with the fact that it was like a dress that was being worn and was destructive and that you can't treat museum dresses like regular dresses and it was so much more about the fact of oh her skin tone didn't even match the dress or her body didn't even match the dress in ways that like if Scarlett Johansson had done it it would have been less of an issue yes Exactly. Well, I mean, the Maryland dress was a like a race issue or a race commentary mm-hmm. or race policing above all other issues. And that is why yeah. I have the greatest problem with it is not the destruction to the garment, but the discourse around why people were upset. Right. Well, and I think that's a really useful example to point out that there is a to your point, like there is a conservation critique of that behavior to be made by people who understand conservation and like care probably more than the average person about like the preservation of textile history. But that's probably like, I mean, this is an exaggeration. That was maybe like 0.1% of what was actually happening. Like the conversation was actually happening, especially because most of the people that were complaining about it probably had no idea that dress existed in an archive Mm -hmm. prior to that thing, like prior to her wearing it. And I think that's even, I don't know, because I was thinking about like the paintings. It's like, there's also a certain certain amount of, we don't care about these things until someone threatens them. And so, Mm because I'm sure a lot of the people who were complaining about, oh, they destroyed blah, blah, blah painting. Let's assume that they, you know. Name that painting. Right. Yeah, name, name that, that painting. painting. And also, whether you've seen it in person or not, it's what role does that painting actually play in your life? I mean. I mean, that's very much the, I think that this is part of why we pretend to be so upset is because it allows us to do the eat the rich thing, right? It allows us to create that mob mentality in which we get, I mean, in the case of protesters when it comes to art, like the with climate change, like they aren't affluent, but there is this idea of we get to rally around a figure like the Kardashians and there is this sort of like public execution and public like crucifixion of these people and we are doing it because of the spectacle of it feels nice to like shit on rich people because we feel like they have something that we don't or they have that position of power and this is like the one time that we get to subvert that. But also specific kinds of rich people. Well I mean like I was annoyed about the whole Kim Kardashian thing because I I was like she the only reason she's getting to do this is because she rich. That's how she has access to that mm-hmm. dress. She's rich and famous. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if she's that rich and famous, couldn't she just have And you would like to wear no, that dress. Couldn't she have one specially made for her? <laughs> yeah, she could, she could, I mean... Which, by the way, she did. We talked about it yes, back then. Yes. She did mm-hmm. have one specially yeah. made. She didn't wear it the entire time. There were two dresses. She had the one that she had made and she had the original one and she switched back and forth depending on the photo opportunity so, and whether and so also whether she did she really to need out. to wear that particular dress? No, not at all. But, Entirely performative. Well, and I don't know, this might be if we're going to tie the protesting back to the overall you have to have certain status in order to even be able to take the day off from work to go protest or you're risking more than somebody else you know yeah if you don't have that opportunity yeah. like, yes. I've, I've been in that situation where i could risk arrest as a grad student because i wasn't gonna lose my job right. there mm-hmm. were other people who chose to risk arrest at the same thing who did lose their and right. so i think and that's i think that's another thing where not all acts of protest it was one of the reasons i actually got really mad about getting complimented 
arrested, which is also a weird thing to compliment people for getting arrested. It's like a whole different thing, which is also heavily racialized. But that was part of why I was mad when people like would say like nice things like, oh, you did such a kind thing. I'm like, no, I did the thing that you were like we went to do. And I guarantee you the people who were saying nice to me would not have said it to the other people who were like also right. being arrested. Mm-hmm. It may be an interesting. All of these critiques of class consciousness are largely avoiding any discussion of race whatsoever, which mm-hmm. feels strange. Well, I mean, th- their race also do you know, things like disability. Higher week, actually, oh. there's been a discourse on Twitter that I have not participated in, but watched about, you know, like the abandonment by some members of the left of people with disabilities when it comes to things like not just COVID, but disability activism in general. So that's a, another long, uh, maybe that's a follow up episode. <laughs> right now, um, Does that um, mean we resolve yes. nothing? No, yeah. well, here, I've had a brain thought, and my question is if she wells the time machine, the ultimate eat the rich story. Oh, okay. I actually think it's an ultimate eat humanity story, but go ahead. My, my argument here is that the Morlocks were descended from like the oppressed factory workers and the Elon we were the like, you know, rich people who like didn't have to do anything and so became weak. And over time, the Morlocks started eating them. So the rich are being preyed upon by the descendants of the people they repressed. Yet I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes. Like I agree. However, and there's maybe in a future episode to talk about the very complicated like, class trajectory of H.G. Wells because it's, it's an interesting history. Yes. He grew up in yes. poverty and eventually ascended to being like wealthy off the basis of his writing. There's a and whole socialist. class thing and a socialist. Also, I think polygamous briefly, partially complicated. Anyway, and he so he has like very interesting thoughts about class in general. That's probably never in the episode. But I think also, it's also important to acknowledge in the time machine at the very end of the novel, if I'm remembering correctly because it's been a few years, it, he fast forwards like yes. millennia yes, yes. and there is nothing left. And yeah. so, so like, I think yeah. like the larger, yeah, so like the larger class critique is situating this thing of, oh, like people don't matter. And not in the sense, mm-hmm. I think, of human lives don't matter, but like looking at the span of millennia, because remember that H.G. Wells is also trained in some respects as a scientist as well. So like looking actually more of like an anthropologist, like look, looking at the long history of the planet, what happens with Eloy and the Morlock is a blip in history. And so I think it's more than, it, it goes beyond class critique to be like, this is all inconsequential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I meant this to just be a tiny little joke, but now I feel like we now have two follow-up episodes. <laughs> because H.G. Wells is very interesting. And we can talk about H.G. Wells autobiography. I will die happy. Yeah, we can do it. And also, he had very specific ideas about evolution. And we can also work in some Sylvia Marino Garcia because she just wrote a book called mm-hmm. Daughter of Dr. Moreau, He's which is a, a retelling. Yes. Yes, he is. And we never got to play because COVID hit. I know. One day. One day, one day we'll buy a little miniature <laughs> war game kit. So on that note, we have resolved that we are going to play H.G. Wells's life-size war game in which yes. people may or may not actually die. Who knows? We'll have to tune in for that episode whenever it happens. You know, sometime like weeks, well, two I, years. I was sitting here thinking we were, we never really got into the issue of the island in the menu being called Hawthorne, which I don't know about anybody else. Maybe it's just mm. me, but I'm, I was thinking the birthmark and how this quest for perfection, yeah. mm. you know, linked to the idea of these foodies and this elevation of the food oh, oh. and how, of course, in the story that ultimately destroys the thing that was loved. So a short story that I'm teaching on Wednesday. There you go. Cool. Or 
No, actually, no, on Monday. Yeah, no. Monday actually of the of I think podcast time travel. Yeah, of this week as you listen to it too. Yes. So yeah, so we have a lot of unresolved threads. Yeah, as usual. Well, but I mean, and mine was like I just I sort of we've done shows like this before. We've done like the show where we looked at like various different versions of Dracula. We looked we did one show where we looked at various versions of a Christmas Carol. I kind of want to do a follow up episode where we look at various different versions of Most Dangerous. Oh game yeah. Now, there's yeah. been a mm. lot of adaptations that many of which are not obviously adaptations, but once you realize, oh, this story recurs a lot. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the obviously Ready or Not is just one of them. It's just Most Dangerous Game. So you know, let us know in the comments of you know what things that you want to hear us talk about in follow ups. So, but that said, Nicole, Ani, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thank you yes. for having us. <laughs> Thanks for the invite. Well, Nicole, anything you want to plug? Not the moment. I mean, you can find me on Twitter. I'm not that exciting, but feel free. And uh, uh, submissions are closed for PCA, so I don't have to plug that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Ani. Oh, nothing to plug. But I did want to say, if I can be an early commenter on what you should review, if you also do Most Dangerous Game Combo Island of Dr. Moreau, there is a great Batman the Animated Series episode that mm-hmm. does an Island of Dr. Moreau episode where Catwoman becomes a cat woman. And it's okay. Absolutely. And Monica. Oh, so people can find me either on Instagram or on Twitter. On Instagram, that's going to be, they're both at Monica Marvelous, but on Instagram, that's L-O-U-S. And on Twitter, that's L-O-U-X. Let's keep talking about getting rich people or rude people. All of you both. And Katya. I still don't believe in the internet. You can technically follow me at on Instagram at just that nerd kid. I may post again eventually. It'll probably be sewing and or cat related. Other than that, I would just like plug the idea of, you know, eat a day. Cookies are nice. Aww. And if everyone I- had a nice snack, maybe the world would be a nice place. That does sound wonderful. Are you are you offering to make snacks for us? <laughs> Fuck no. You are an able-bodied individual that can find your own snack map. Also, you're very far away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean technically, yes, it's far easier for me to bake my own cookies than for you to come here and bake cookies for me. But I'd have to go all the way downstairs. I mean, oh. I'm on the second floor. The kitchen is 15, 20, you know, literal steps away. Uh, just You can't see me, but I'm playing the world's smallest violin, like the passive-aggressive, <laughs> petulant teenager that I am. And Hannah. I'm oh. here, but also oh. I'm once again going to plug the National Network of Abortion Funds because reproductive justice is good. Thank you, everybody. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places, at Box Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.boxpopcast.com, where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week. And you can leave us comments on this or any other show to suggest topics or say anything else that's on your mind. You can tell us, you know, which episodes you want to hear us do. Should we do an episode on Most Dangerous Game? Should we do an episode on something else? Let us know what you want to hear more of. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out, especially if you leave us a five-star review. And especially if you leave a rating with that review where you write a little something, tell people how much the show is awesome. That tweaks the algorithm and, you know, makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.